Good evening, everyone. Just come on in and grab a seat if you can. Come on in and, and take a seat. Um, it's great to be here with you guys tonight, and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, my name is Deepu Gautam. I'm an internist here at Columbia, and I'm the course director of our clinical skills course in the first two years called Foundations of Clinical Medicine Tutorials. Uh, it's the course where we teach the students the physical exam and the medical interview, and where they go to the bedside and start to learn how to be clinicians. Um, the work of narrative medicine continues to really inspire and inform the work we do at PNS. Um, please mark your calendars. Narrative Medicine Rounds happens the first Wednesday of every month. Um, November 5th, we'll have filmmaker Kathy Leichter with us. And December 3rd, writer Will Boast and author of Empathy Exams, Leslie Jameson, will be with us as well. Um, and to introduce our speaker tonight, um, I want to welcome uh, Danielle Spencer to the podium. Danielle is a friend. Um, she's a colleague. She's also a faculty member in the program in Narrative Medicine, where she teaches master's students. She teaches our medical students as well. Um, Danielle Spencer. Thanks, Deepu. Um, in Daniel Max's book, The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery, he describes a 2001 meeting of an Italian family with an extremely rare genetic condition known as fatal familial insomnia. Don't worry, I'm not going to give the whole story away <laughs> just yet. Um, it's a prion disease characterized by protein malformation. As Daniel describes, this terrible and terrifying condition had been in the family for many generations, cloaked in silence and shame. The meeting marked a turning point of sorts where many family members met to discuss such questions as whether and how to collaborate with genetic scientists researching FFI and related conditions. As he recounts, his presence at the meeting was questioned by some family members. As a writer, was he there to exploit their plight, they wondered. He shared with them, and generously with us, his readers, that he lives with a disease as well, a neurodegenerative illness also characterized by protein malformation. He describes his response to the family. I told the group that the chief goal of my book would be to remind the reader that we are all mortal and must live with the awareness of our own mortality that though death may come to their family in one particularly hard form, none of us is exempt. We all die at once good and bad deaths. Mm -hmm. And so Daniel reminds us that it's in sharing these tales that we face together what it means to be human and mortal. And in so doing, we also celebrate that which is vital and joyful in our shared time together. In his biography of David Foster Wallace, uh, Daniel quotes a 1993 interview in the Review of Contemporary Fiction in which Wallace says, we'd probably most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones, but do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is? In dark times, the definition of good art would seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical that still live and glow despite the time's darkness. Really good fiction could have as dark a worldview as it wished, but it'd find a way both to depict this world and to illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in it. Mm. To illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in the world. In our work in narrative medicine, we seek to do what Daniel describes in the family that couldn't sleep face our shared mortality, 
and to improve the capacity of those who care for the sick to face it as well. We seek, as Rita Sharon says, to dwell in the doubt together as patients, family members, clinicians, and we seek always to celebrate the potential of literature and art to apply CPR to enrich our understanding and our experience. And so we are very honored to have Daniel Max join us tonight. He's a graduate of Harvard University and a staff writer at The New Yorker, the author of the best-selling Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace, which The New York Times named one of the 10 best books of the year, and The Family That Couldn't Sleep, Unraveling Venetian Medical Mystery, which Natalie Angier, writing in the New York Times Book Review, called gripping, cleanly written, cannily plotted, and elegantly educational. The book brims with great tales. And I'm not writing in the New York Times, but speaking to you today, second the review. He is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and is at work on a book with the enigmatic title, The Most Conspicuous Person on the Planet. He lives just over the Hudson in New Jersey with his wife, their two young children, and a rescued beagle who came to them named Max. Please join me in welcoming Daniel Max. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, and Danielle, that was a lovely introduction. It reminded me that I, um, I think I was talking in Arizona, and someone said there was something called narrative medicine um, at you know, Columbia Presbyterian, and I thought, I've got to go and talk to these people, because narrative medicine had sort of been what I had been trying to do all along. I mean, admittedly, I didn't have the degree to do it, but I thought, that's what Family That Couldn't Sleep is really about. It's about an attempt to take narration and through narration both kind of explicate the mysteries of sickness and death and also I think just as Natalie Angier said better than I could, you know, tell a cannily plotted and elegantly educational tale. She's very good at that by the way. I think just write a blurb for everybody. Um, so the story you're going to hear today is um, a very sad one obviously and uh, Danielle said a little bit about what what happens uh, in, effectively what happens in the family couldn't sleep, but also kind of the, the end point. But let's start from the beginning. So, um, but I wanted to show you first, this is, this is the American paperback uh, cover. And since narrative medicine is inevitably, at least in my mind, about culture, cultures and cultural uh, assumptions, and cultural uh, predilections, um, just gonna show you a couple of different covers of the book so you can see so this is the British cover, which um, I find amazing because of its total lack of angst. Um, and when I pointed out to the British designers that this book was uh, set in Venice, um, the um, designer, who was certainly as clever as Natalie Angier, knocked out one of the eyes and put it in the gondola. I think during a very bibulous lunch. So I was. I admired that enormously, that kind of uh, swiftness of response. So here's the French cover, which is sort of obvious enough. Since this is actually a disease characterized by the most horrific weight loss, um, why they would assume that they'd have to put in a sort of Angra type uh, sleeping um, quasi nude on the cover, well, I guess that's just the only way you're going to get um, French readers to approach a book as, as, as somber as this one. Um, and then I found the, the, the Chinese cover interesting too because of the total absence of the personal from it. And that's, you know, what that is, as you'll see later on, is I guess roughly speaking what a prion or misformed protein looks like um, either before or after. And I'm told 
but not on terrific authority that the Chinese title, and anyone who speaks Mandarin here can help, may be the phrase killer egg whites. Anyone here? <laughs> Usually someone corrects that, but apparently egg white and protein are the same word. It's a little bit of a cheat. Egg white and protein is the same word, which is reasonable enough because egg whites are the first protein most of us encounter. Uh, and then killer is sort of what prions do. Anyway, so that's just a quick tour around the world about how people deal with an absolutely identical story in different ways. Each of us taking what I think is most palatable to us. For the Chinese, it's the science. Um, for the French, and frankly also for American television, it was a sort of quasi-erotic connotations of the bed and sleep, although God knows there's nothing remotely erotic about a severe neurodegenerative disease. Um, I think the British, frankly, just didn't really care. <laughs> they just thought it was a great opportunity to do an interesting cover and challenge their techniques as designers, which is lovely, frankly. And then in America, we had this sort of more or less straightforward fact-check type visage of this agonized person in a bed, neither too sort of agonized nor too happy. Um, so let's start our story. The story is really, as a, as a journalist, this isn't a story I invented. I didn't stumble upon the patients. What I did is I stumbled upon the people who had stumbled upon the patients. Um, you'll see there a fellow with a, mus a mustache and his wife. They're Ignazio and Lisi. Uh, and it's really Ignazio. It, the, the disease is in Lisi's family, but it's Ignazio who found it. And Ignazio, in a lot of ways, performed the work uh, that is traditionally sort of done by a journalist. He was a young doctor who marries in into an Italian family and he begins to hear stories. He's actually a med school student when he first starts getting interested. So what he hears is that there's this weird family disease. It's almost like something from Edgar Allan Poe. There's a weird disease that's characterized um, by a failure to sleep in your, usually in your late 50s, although there were family members who suffered from it in their 20s, and there are actually some who are fine. So he thought this was really interesting. I think Ignazio had a couple of motives. One, he's a genuinely curious person, as many, many doctors are. He just wanted to know what the hell this thing was. And then two, I don't think it's be wrong to say that ambition is often a part of our calculations. Certainly journalists are by no means exempt. And I think he saw a possibility to make his name. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a clinician. He's not, a, he's not, he's not a, a researcher. And as a clinician, you know, generally speaking, that your chances of sort of making your name in a major way are much more limited. Um, and I think he saw this an opportunity. So, basically, if you look at this very odd document, this is a chart from 1960, and the only words that you might be able to make out, uh, it's the symptoms of, some, of a family member who had fatal familial insomnia. So, you may be able to make out the phrase, non miserabile perché il mercurio, and then I can't read the rest. But anyway, the, the idea here is that the person's temperature was, could not be measured because the thermometer topped out. Oh. So, and you can imagine in 1963 in Italy, which was a country still sort of recovering from the war, this was an absolutely confusing, basically no one knew what to do with it. No one did know what to do with it. There weren't the resources to figure it out. So these notes just sat in files for years. You know, it was the kind of thing where there's a wonderful Italian expression, bow. So if you say to somebody like, why did, wh how could you have a patient whose temperature was above the top of the thermometer, the doctor, the neurologist probably would go, well, bow, you know. <laughs> and then you'd have lunch. Like there is no answer and an answer can't immediately be found and we don't have the, either the technology or the resources and we have enough problems, so bow. All right, so these, this says, and if you see the bottom, it says, deceduta ore, and it gives the time that, that, the, that this woman died. Um, 
All this just sits, but Ignacio and Lisi, who's obviously a family member, hear about a number of members of the family, going back actually to the 18th century, um, who had debts that were not sort of easily characterized. You can see these little black squares. Um, uh, you can also see how big these families were back then. But uh, this was a, supposedly a patient named Giacomo. They were, they were basically looking around to see who was the first patient. Um, and uh, what I think they found is that, among other things, if you, you, it's very hard to separate the signal from the noise in 18th century Italy or 19th century Italy. There was so much death. Mm. You had malaria in the Veneto, where Venice is. You had a disease called pellagra, now entirely gone, but I believe it's a disease from having, it's, you, it's if all you have is the vitamins that are in rice or polenta, is it vitamin D and no other diseases? Someone, anyone know? Well, that showed you how much pellagra has disappeared. So pellagra means rough skin, and one of the characteristics was you had this thick, rough skin anyway, it's gone. Um, there was obviously infant mortality anyway, Nobody had ever quite focused on what was going on in this family. But here we are, you know, we're now in the late 1970s. Ignacio is a medical school student, and he is beginning to think about it. And his wife, you know, who is in the family, obviously has a much more um, ambivalent relationship with digging up the information, right? I mean, for Ignacio, who's sort of in the role almost of a journalist here, uh, it's reasonable enough to say, okay, this is what I want to find out. But for, for Lizzie, yeah. who's family this is and whose aunts and uncles and, and grandfather have all di you know, died from the disease. It's a much more complicated picture. So this is a picture of the family from the 1920s, from the, from the fascist era actually. Um, and of these, uh, I, I believe that it's the seven standing individuals who are actually related genetically and I believe three of them were to, died from, from what we would now assume to be fatal familial insomnia, though again we don't have absolute uh, records on this. So, you know, consciousness and a willingness to sort of deal with disease and fight disease come slowly, I think, in a family. And one thing you have to have are sort of reasons why you're going to present yourself for the kind of difficult analysis that takes place in neurology or a sleep clinic. Um, and then I also just think there's a kind of modern mindset that allows you to take the sort of risks of shame and, and public, public revelation that in Italy even more than in the United States, I'd say much more than in the United States, would have prevented this family from ever exactly sort of coming forward. So this is a man named Silvano, and this is a picture from the 70s. Silvano was uh, Lisi, the woman in that original picture's uh, uncle, and therefore if there is such a, a phrase, Ignazio, the doctor slash journalist uncle-in-law. Um, and he was a kind of social butterfly in Venice in the 70s, a very happy guy. Um, out every night, one friend of his said he'd never seen he'd never seen Silvano without Silvano being in a tuxedo. Um, here he's you know on some sort of cruise, and he was very handsome man, very very handsome. But you know the family members looked at his red hair and his broad face, and they actually said to themselves privately, "Well, that's those are the, those are the characteristics of people in our family who get the disease." It's just anecdotal, but. I think they all felt like Silvano was at risk, and he used to tell people, you know, if he could get to the age of 60, he'd be okay. Um, unfortunately, Silvano doesn't get to the age of 60, but two of his sisters become sick before that and die. One of them is a, a, a woman named Assunta, and she, after she dies at um, Padua, which is a pretty good medical school and a pretty good hospital, certainly by Italian standards, the um, pathologists try and figure out what's going on, right? So they do, they do an autopsy, 
uh, and they open up her head and they keep looking for some sort of horrible alteration in the brain tissue which would justify such a cataclysmic death. This is a woman, you know, who had been healthy up till the mid up till up till she's in her mid 50s and then suddenly she can't sleep, okay? First symptom actually isn't insomnia, it's that your um, your pupils begin to contract. So the way the family can recognize these sorts of conditions in each other is this is they they look at each other and their and their pinpricks, their their pupils are like little pinpricks. Um, and they begin to sweat uncontrollably because what's really going on in the body is that the thalamus is being uh, injured by prions and leaving small holes in the thalamus. If you look at, uh, at Silvano, I've never been sure in this picture whether that sort of quality of having a somewhat sweaty face is connected to um, just being out on a cruise or, or whether it's early signs of the, of the disease. But anyway, so Ignacio with Lisi's permission and participation begins to put together a really detailed family chart. And it turns out that in Italy, you never know these things until you try, it's, it's fairly hard to get a hold of people's information. The, all the birth and death records are kept in parish houses. There isn't really, or there wasn't for a long time, a central civil registry for these things like we would have here. And so Ignazio you know, has no legal right really to go and do these things, but it, it is a while ago. And so he used to go and he would greet the, the parish priest who was often, a, a, in my opinion anyway, a person sort of desperate for company sitting in those wonderful parish houses <laughs> in the rural Italy with nothing to do but talk to, talk to the woman who cooked for him. Um, and he would say that he was an organist, which is true. Ignazio was an enthusiastic amateur organist and played the organ in his own little parish church. And he would say, you know, may I go and, and just try out your organ? And the parish priest would uniformly say, you know, please, my son, enjoy. So off he'd go, he'd play a few bars, assume that the parish priest had gone back to watching television, uh, and then he would sneak down into the parish archives and photocopy <laughs> birth and death records. So he actually put together, I think, a fairly, a fairly good family tree. Among the things you see again, the enormous number of children, if you look at this bottom right-hand generation, there's three, five, seven, nine, eleven, uh, fourteen children, and you can see some of the very early death things not connected to uh, fatal familial insomnia. Ignatius is a very cultured man, and when, when he believed somebody had died from the disease, although you would think this would be a little bit indelicate, he would put a little picture of the scream over there. I don't know if you can see that. But, um, so those little pictures of the scream were his way of marking them. It's not, not something any geneticist would do with a patient, but he, he, it worked for him. It caught for him the horror of the disease, and, and Munch's scream is certainly a perfect representation. So at this point, he and I were working together, and I would try my own admittedly very poor versions of the scream. So that handwriting of the other, the little drawings like an eight-year-old is my <laughs> very limited artistic ability uh, put to work on the family tree. So basically they kept finding more people, um, more and more people. Uh, and then Silvano, the handsome red-headed fellow you see before, um, got sick. So he always knew, I think, in his heart that he would get the disease. It was partially, I think, because of he looked like other people in the family. Um, there is actually no genetic reason why red hair would go with um, the mutation for fatal familial insomnia, but it was the family belief and, and you know. Um, so he did something very brave. He, a lot of the family members over the, over the years had hidden out. From a narrative point of view, I think you could say that they did not want the narration that came with their disease, right? Mm -hmm. They all preferred 
the kind of single dots of information rather than the line which would connect what had happened. And partially I think that's really understandable because although, you know, there's a line now that connects them, there, there, there is no cure. I mean, there was, the line wasn't going to terminate in any sort of wonderful place for them. But still, I think they understood that they had to get organized and they had to begin to think a little bit about what was going on. It was just going to continue forever. So Silvano, though in some ways the least likely hero of the story, went to the neurology clinic um, in, um, uh, in his hometown, and he, in fact, in Bologna. Um, and he said, I know what I have, and I know how I'm going to die. And what I want you to do is, as soon as I'm dead, I want you to take my brain, um, and, and I want you to, to do the best possible analysis on it and figure out what's been happening in my family for hundreds of years. So Silvano, person of enormous courage. Um, so Silvano, unfortunately, you know, he had all the symptoms, the, the, the uncontrolled body temperature, the um, endless uh, uh, secretion of, of adrenaline, um, the sleeplessness, the pupils that contract to pinpricks, all the symptoms of fatal familial insomnia. Uh, no one had to name that. Uh, and unfortunately, he died in August, which anyone who knows Italy will know that in August in Italy, you can't get anything done. Like, it doesn't matter who you are, but you cannot get a pathologist to come and remove a brain even of the most interesting and promising disease you've ever seen in your lifetime, unless Italian solution you pay, it on, you pay for it on the side. So the uh, head of sleep medicine there, understanding, I think in a reasonable way that he was onto something no one had ever seen before, actually paid for a uh, pathologist to come and out of, out of his own pocket and they shipped the brain to a colleague of theirs who was a Case Western, who was kind of an expert in brain pathologies, um, whose name was Pierluigi Gambetti. Uh, and he, saw the tiny holes, the tiny vacuoles in the thalamus of Silvano's brain tissue. Um, at the same time, there was an Italian uh, sleep researcher who had sort of, he kind of cataloged, this is just a picture of Silvano's gravesite, but this fellow, Elio Lugarese, um, sort of uh, had at the same time done a kind of very good clinical study of what the what the deprivation of sleep looked like in someone with fatal familial insomnia. So there was no deep sleep at all. If you looked at that picture of Silvano from before, you can see that he's kind of awake and kind of asleep. Though those hooded eyes, that intense tiredness is very characteristic of the disease. Uh, and so sort of between the two of them, Gambetti and uh, Lugarese, they named a new disease. They put it in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, called it fatal familial insomnia. One of those sort of wonderful titles, as Gambetti said to me, you know, he said, we had, he said, he said that the naming of the disease was the greatest success we had because actually we didn't have any way to cure it. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have any solution for it, but we got a name that everybody noticed, and it's true. I mean, fatal familial insomnia, as he said, it really should be called familial fatal insomnia, but fatal familial insomnia sounds better. And so this disease suddenly kind of you know, bursts on, this, on the world scene. This is a headline from an Italian paper saying, help us, we're dying of insomnia. Uh, and so, you know, it caught the public's imagination, which of course is very different from actually providing either a cure or even a very good um, analysis. Around the same time, and completely unconnected to fatal familial insomnia, the idea that there is, a, that you could actually have a protein, which when it misforms, 
behaves like a virus, in other words, is capable of infecting other adjoining proteins, is becoming, if not completely established, at least largely accepted. That protein, of course, being the prion. At some point, Pierluigi Gambetti from Case Western and the people who are doing prion studies, Stanley Prusner at the University of California, San Francisco, wins a Nobel Prize, kind of exchange notes. And it is with Prusner's help that Gambetti is able to classify fatal familial insomnia as a prion disease. So prion diseases are extremely weird beasts, as some of you may know. I mean, they're the great head scratchers of medicine. And one of the, one of the things that I find when I talk to doctors about prion diseases, it's one of those things that most of them will never see, but all of them are interested in. Because it's a little bit like, I don't know if you guys take the subway, but if you ever go to J Street uh, in Brooklyn, I believe it's the A and the F are on the same tracks, if I'm right, or maybe it's the A and the 2. Anyway, it's something that shouldn't happen. Like if you've grown up in New York, it's an improbable <laughs> conjunction. And so by the same idea, you cannot have a protein. So you cannot have a protein that behaves like a virus. A protein can't be infectious. A protein doesn't contain DNA. A protein, so to speak, has no motive yeah. for infection. And yet here we have this protein, which in the case of fatal familial insomnia, essentially what's going on, and the reason why this is a disease of, of late middle age, this comes as no surprise to any of you who are my age, but as you get older, everything you do is worse, right? Your body is not the body it was when you were 20. And you, you do not clear damaged proteins out of your cells as well as you did when you were 20. You didn't know you were doing it well. You thought you were in college. It turns out among the things you were really kicking ass on was your protein clearance. <laughs> so you get older and the system starts coming up and you begin to get the symptoms. So that's the inherited form with the mutated gene. Um, the infectious form uh, bursts on the scene around the same time in the form of a disease now not much talked about, but at the time certainly a huge headline called mad cow disease. So mad cow disease is an interesting prion story um, in that much of the British cattle population was being fed rendered animal protein, and those proteins unfortunately were cattle proteins. And one of the things about prion disease is it does, it's much more efficient as a disease when the protein that is causing the infection is the same protein uh, as is present in the host. A wonderful example of this, uh, and not in my slideshow, because I lost many of my slides, although Cynthia graciously repaired what I had had. But anyway, a great example of this is a disease called Kuru. Kuru is a disease that occurred in Papua New Guinea beginning in the 50s, uh, and I think early 60s. There was a great amount of energy uh, Western researchers, principally a man named Carlton Geideshek, who would win the first of the two Nobel Prizes given uh, to prion research, although he didn't call them prions. Anyway, um, it's a disease, and all these women and children in, their, um, in, in these tribes in Papua New Guinea were dying of this mysterious disease, which was called the laughing disease. The laughing disease, because one of the symptoms was supposedly uncontrollable laughter, but what it really was, was it was again a neuro, it was some sort of dreadful neurodegenerative disease, one of whose symptoms was laughter, or some sort of uncontrolled kind of, uh, I don't know, quite, it wasn't quite laughter, but anyway, Time Magazine called it laughter. It was, in that era in America, it was good enough. So these, um, so Carlton Geideshek, who was a, certainly a brilliant polymathic kind of fellow, went sort of trumping through the, 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 the bush of Papua New Guinea, taking blood samples and testing all these um, women and children for every possible poison from smoke inhalation to, to mani you know, bad manioc, so I don't know what it was. Anyway, 
And eventually it turned out, not through Carlton's research, but through an anthropologist who, who went after him, named Shirley Glass, and Shirley Lindenbaum was still at CUNY, but she was Australian, an Australian one at the time. She's John Lindenbaum's wife. Ah, okay. Who was an internist here. Okay, so there's a, a family connection um, to Columbia Presbyterian. Uh, she found that what all these people had in common, these women and children, is that they had been present at mortuary feasts. In other words, it had been a, considered an honor, and certainly it was a custom among some of the tribe in Papua New Guinea to be present and to consume, I presume, small portions of the body of the deceased. I, I, you know, there's a lot of ideas about why they did this, and protein is actually a possibility because actually women and children were not, unlike my house, the women and children uh, eat, eat last in Papua New Guinea. I always think about this when my, my son and daughter pounce on the lamb chop, and I love like, hoping for the rice. But it was the reverse in Papua New Guinea. And so they um, were forced, both by custom and I think certain amount of protein need, to consume the remains of the deceased. Now, one of the things you have to realize is, well, that's part of the puzzle, but the real mystery in Papua New Guinea was what, well, what, these were, these were feasts that take at least 30 years before. We knew of no disease that took 30 years to incubate in the system. And so, in that sense, you know, Shirley Lindenbaum and Carlton Gadishek, I think in some ways, both provided certain pieces of the puzzle, because it was really Carlton who had the idea that you could have something which he called, I thought, quite intelligently, a slow virus. It was only later that the terminology for prion disease got kind of fun and weird. But he just called it a slow virus. So, as mad cow disease takes a root in the popular imagination, even more in Europe than here, this is a book, it's actually, I believe, if I remember right, a, mission, a thriller story in which terrorists um, encase pills in, protein, in, in, um, in gelatin that's infected with, with, uh, you know, with, with prions. I have no idea if that's actually a possibility, but I suspect not likely. Anyway, it was only, only published in Canada. Um, <laughs> All right, so years go by, and what do you do when you're a family with this condition? Well, the Italian family's done a number of things. I think many of them courageous. Um, for a while, they, were, they tried to be involved with American researchers. I think they found it just too hard, I mean, to come over here, to be tested, to go home with no solution. So over the years, they have founded uh, an organization uh, which is almost entirely based in Italy. When I first began with them, they sort of had thoughts and hopes of being on Oprah and all this kind of thing. But I think they found actually that the sort of psychological toll from that kind of exposure was just too much for them. And what were they really getting in return? So they, they now work, it's a very, very, I think it's actually beautiful. I've never received a solicitation from a, a nonprofit half as elegant as this one. This is really Ignazio's mind. But um, so they're working with an, uh, with an Italian uh, protein lab. Um, in America, you know, that, that's really the end of, of the narrative that I give in the book. But of course, life doesn't stop when your book finishes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this woman on the right is named Sonia Valab, and that's her husband, Eric. And she came to me years later and said that her mother had had fatal familial insomnia. Again, there was no family history. It seemed to have been uh, a mutation. Um, and she was, at the time, a lawyer. She'd gone to Harvard Law School, and he was a city planner. It's just an interesting story, a sort of cultural story here, because America being a much, I think, wider open place than Italy, with some virtues and obviously many deficits, they weren't, uh, it was, they weren't afraid of what they had found out. And they've done sort of the opposite in a lot of ways of what the Italians did. They quit their jobs, and they went back to school. They founded a nonprofit called Prion Alliance, 
and they now work in prion labs, in effect trying to find, you know, the cure for her disease uh, in, let's say, the 30 years before she will possibly need help. I mean, she, many of the Italians were reluctant to be tested. One of the strange things about Italy was that at least at that time you were not legally entitled to your results, so you didn't even know. Um, in, in America, it would seem to be the reverse. You're legally entitled to results and almost nobody else is. Um, so she was tested, had no hesitation to be tested, and turned out to have the mutation as well. And so it's just an interesting, I think, perhaps a way of saying that in the last, if you think of the narrative of disease and shame in the last 30, 40 years, at least in the United States, I think you'd, you'd have to say that, you know, thanks to huge societal forces from, from Oprah to Facebook um, to a whole different way of understanding our bodies, you know, Sonia had, I think, both the courage and, the, and also the education to come forward and try and solve her, her own problem. That's not at all to say that the Italians have given up. I don't think they have, but I do think that they made a decision at some point that it was just, you know, that, that to sort of throw themselves into the maw of top-level United States medicine was just nothing that, you know, nothing they wanted to do. They, had, they went and saw the Prusner Lab at the University of California in San Francisco, and I, I don't think that they came back feeling the stronger for it. So, anyway, that, that ends the story. I think what we're going to do, are we going to do questions? Um, and the one thing I was going to, um, if we go that direction, I, uh, you know, um, Danielle had mentioned that I was a patient here, and it, it amazed me to find that not that I was a patient here, but I went to the neurological clinic, which turns out to be right through that door. Um, and I have to say, I had no idea that there was a faculty club uh, with wine <laughs> just, just feet away. If someone had only just accidentally walked me through this door, I can tell you I would spend a lot less time in the neurology clinic, a lot more time in the faculty. Anyway, thank you for listening to the story, and, and let's have some questions. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I take the note never to answer technical medical questions in any, any venue like this. But that, my understanding is that that's correct, that, you're, you're, um, that your ability to, to, you have something called a lysosome in your cells, which devours misshaped proteins, gobbles them up and spits them out. And, sorry, like everything in your body, uh, you produce more malformed proteins as you get older. Uh, so I would, you know, there's been a lot of studies on this. I, I think our understanding isn't that these people suddenly begin to produce the malformed protein at a certain age, I think it's that cumulatively they begin to produce more of them and they fail to clear the ones that they are producing. It's a little bit like Alzheimer's in that way. In fact, what's interesting about the disease and what makes it more than just a curio disease is that the basic principle of these kind of plaque-like formations is similar in Alzheimer's and, and, and Parkinson's and so on. So it's been a kind of a helpful disease in, in, in that way for a lot of other research efforts. Alzheimer's disease? Is there anything in the, in the DNA, RNA that would suggest 
disease? You mean in fatal familial insomnia? Yeah. Yeah, no, they have the gene. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple point mutation. I, I at one point knew what gene it is. Maybe anyone who spends their time studying genetics know the answer. Anyway, I could give it to you after, but it's a simple point mutation, it's a very easy mutation. Um, and in another, you know, there's a polymorphism that leads to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and another one that leads to GSS, the pronunciation I don't think I'm going to dare, dare to try here, but Gertzmann Scheinkler Straussmann, or is it Straussmann Scheinkler? Anyone know? Robert? German Straussler Schlinkler. All right, thank you. He comes with me to all uh, my speeches and corrects all my. <laughs> Sure. You know, I mean, it's, it's a sort of an interesting story in, in a number of ways. One, yeah, I don't think if I hadn't had my own kind of bouts with disease, I would have been remotely interested in a, a family with this problem. I really think that one of the kind of rubrics that I went into the, into the book with is a quote from Wallace Stevens. Uh, and that the quote is, um, uh, the natives of the rain are rainy men, from which I, I took the idea that you know, we're all natives of the rain. And so it was kind of an act of denial or obfuscation not to ever look at, obviously this is a family that's caught in a storm. But the more, the more sort of prosaic and straightforward answer is I was then a writer at the New York Times Magazine and we had an issue that was gonna be about diseases that cross borders. Mm -hmm. Something ordinary work of the magazine world. And I think I looked at doing something about is it tuberculosis in the Hajj? There's some problem with the Hajj. Anyway, the Hajj is you know, the great uh, pilgrimage, and obviously you put that many people in a small space with only rudimentary sanitation, you're going to have diseases. So we were going to do that, but it was impossible to get, to get in at that time already. Um, I believe that I was on the phone with a neurologist at the University of Chicago, who was, I don't remember how I found him, it was, this, it was sort of the early days of the internet. It's not impossible that I found him sort of with AOL, you know, dial-up service, like slowly creeping along. And anyway, and he said, and I asked him, I, well, some form or another, a fellow named James Mastriani, a really, really superb prion doctor, and I asked him if he had any interesting diseases, and he told me, he said that he had had a patient who had just died from lack of sleep. So I didn't know much about medicine. My background is in comparative literature. The, David Foster Wallace biography, in a way, was easier for me to write from a technical point of view than the family that couldn't sleep. But I wasn't so dumb as not to think that that was really weird. And I said to him, but I thought it was impossible to, you know, nobody ever died from lack of sleep, right? And he said, well, uh, that's what you think. So I had, I had said, I'll come out to Chicago. I'd really love to hear more about this. And he was willing, but I think he also was sort of a, a guy who understood these things. He said, you know, actually, there's a family in Italy who have had this condition for hundreds of years. And I said to him, well, you know, where in Italy? And he said, Venice. And I thought to myself, you know, I sort of weighed in my mind, you know, death in Chicago, death in Venice. And I got my passport. But I really think that I wouldn't have done the story if I hadn't been already kind of in the rainy world. I just don't think I would have responded to it. I think it would have passed it by the way you passed by things that are kind of too difficult or too uh, hard to understand. So in that sense, I think the, 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 the real narrative that goes into the story, you know, was my narrative, my openness, my becoming more open to 
seeing what was going on. Um, but the more, but you know, the straightforward way was was the classic way that a journalist finds something. I mean, now it would be on the web, but at the time it was the telephone. Well, not to get too detailed, there's actually there's sort of two forms of the disease, depending on a, on a polymorphism. But the, the kind that Silvano had is very rapid. Uh, and it's about nine months. I mean, it, it, is, it is an insomnia. But it's also, I think, a little bit of a cheat in the sense that insomnia happens to be one of the, uh, one of the symptoms, right? But what it really is is a brain injury. I mean, it's a horrific brain injury to the thalamus. And so, all the symptoms are really better understood to the extent we understand what the thalamus does. If you think about, if you destroy a thalamus, you know, what are the symptoms? So the first symptom, as I say, is really these, these the problems that have, that have to do with, with um, you know, the autonomic system of the body where, uh, and sleep is, is, is early. I mean, actually, Silvano used to tell friends, which I find really amazing, that at the beginning, not having to sleep, actually, he liked it that it made him more productive. He could go out later at night. But that's a pretty short symptom. Another very odd symptom, which I don't think is really readily explained, is that people who have the condition uh, do something called enacted dreaming, where they, um, like if you were a woman who'd done a lot of knitting and you were ill, you would, in this kind of in-between state, you would, you would knit. You know, you would, you would be, your hands would make a knitting noise. And since Silvano had a very, very social life, he, but what he enacted in his dreams is he, he imagined himself plucking a, f a flower and handing it to the Queen of England. So, but I've met a lot of other families. You know, one of the things about, about symptoms is they vary, as any of you know who practice, actually practice medicine. And there are, there are people who have the condition who don't have pronounced insomnia at all. Probably because I think that the wounds to the brain are, are so enormous that insomnia isn't the thing you notice. Yeah. Rather than that they don't have a similar underlying Condition and the longer form is really just longer. I mean, the symptoms just take—I believe it's a couple of years. Um, I don't know which one is harder for the patient and which one is harder for the family, but they're both obviously very, very difficult. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for your uh, What did the families think about your wanting to tell their story? Mm. You know, I, I think what they felt, what they felt at the beginning was, and this is in the book, that, that, that America would save them. It's sort of in the way that America had saved Italy uh, during the Second World War. I think that they, that they had a, a, a kind of an outsized hope that somehow it would all be made right of sort of the vast pockets. You know, one of the things that Ignazio used to complain to me about, he's a very, very good-natured guy and full of joy, and, um, and that's how you can do those little drawings of Edvard Munch's scream as you, as you, you know, do a genealogy of your wife's family. Uh, but he used to complain that Italy had no equivalent to the NIH. It drove him crazy that Italian medicine was so underfunded. There were so many talented, capable people there, but they didn't have the resources. Um, and so I think the family, by extension, thought if they could do American television, um, they could somehow connect with Americans. Um, I don't think that was a realistic hope in the end. Uh, I mean, I think if you look at successful efforts to raise money for rare diseases, and there are some, 
you know, it's, it's a much more of a kind of ground war than it is an air war. I think it takes a lot of organization. You know, I'm thinking of ALS, but there are actually some very small diseases that have had some success in raising funding. And it hasn't been done this way. At this point, I don't, I don't think, you know, the, the Italians have continued to participate with some Italian efforts. I think they kind of decided that the only people they could, they had, they had a very bad experience with a TV show that had nothing to do with an American TV show. And I think in a lot of ways that soured them on the process. You know, Ignazio was always, and still is, I think, more forthrightly, he wants to do this in some ways much more than the family members do. You know, genetic disease is very complicated because of course some, it's a, it's a, it's a dominant mutation. That still means 50% of the family don't have it, you know, roughly, right, by chance. And so you then have members of the family who are thrilled to have outrun the condition. Um, and then of course you have others who, who, have the, who have the mutation and so, a lot of ways, I just think that the, the kind of noise was just too much for them to proceed forward, even if the path had been clear about where to proceed. You know, they unfortunately, I mean, the good news was they had a disease that everyone in the world was interested in because of the prion connection, right? So there was funding. I mean, Stanley Prusner stood in a hall, I think it was in the mid-90s, and said to the researchers that this was the largest group of prion researchers who would ever assemble, mm. meaning you know, the water is going to flow back out, out to the sea. The interest in prion diseases after mad cow was declining. And it is true, I think, that most money in the world of prion diseases is actually put in the cattle tests because that's the only way you can really figure out how to, how to fund it. The only drug sort of effort, drug trials that have gone on have used pre-existing compounds because it's impossibly expensive to actually manufacture a compound. So they've tried different, different compounds and all of them have had some success and then proven uh, not successful. And actually, Sonia and Eric, the two ex extraordinary young American uh, researchers, now prion researchers, uh, have focused very much on things like, you know, kickstarting mm. funding for drug trials, all sorts of things that seem very of the moment. The first thing they did when she was, when she got her uh, confirmation she had the mutation was, you know, to put it on Facebook try and begin to raise money that way. I think that's probably the more realistic way to go about it at this point. You know, I think there are a lot of rare diseases. It's true this is a very unusual rare disease, but I just think in the end, you know, that you can't go on Oprah at this point. Maybe you've gone Oprah in 1995, yeah. but it's not Oprah in the same way anymore. But you get the idea. Like, it's just all, it's all small now, and it's constant, constant efforts. So I, I want to hear you talk more about the brain. Because when I read the two books together, including the last chapter of Family That Couldn't Sleep, which is about your own experience of being evaluated for a mysterious disease that doesn't have a treatment, um, and also knowing David Foster Wallace's uh, fate as a person who ultimately succumbed uh, to his own hand, so, so it seemed to me, um, it seemed to me that this uh, triad of David Foster Wallace, this family with a horrible untreatable disease, and then your own brush with a mysterious untreatable situation that even our neurologist here said, well, you know, come back and see us maybe. So, so what is it that we share uh, as we, we share? the doubt, the uncertainty, the helplessness. And it seems to me that this occasion of having you here talking with us gives us a chance to really look honestly about 
about these precincts that if we don't share the doubt, the uncertainty, the helplessness, we, um, we um, injure one another with that. I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of truth. And then the last chapter in The Family Couldn't Sleep is, is, is actually my experience of all places right down the hall. So <laughs> kind of strange to be back here. But it's my visits to the Vanderbilt Clinic in, it must be the uh, early 90s. Um, and so if you're curious about what it's like to be on the receiving end of a neurology exam, at Columbia Presbyterian, at least it was done then, but I don't, I don't think it's vastly different, although somewhat different. You know, uh, feast on the last chapter of the book, which is, I think, cunningly disguised. I, my feeling was if you made it through the book, everyone loves memoir, right? We all love memoir. We naturally respond. What, what is the narrative that's most meaningful to us is personal narrative, right? I mean, it's, so I put it at the end of The Family Couldn't Sleep on the theory, if you got through The Family Couldn't Sleep, you got this reward. You got a little bit of memoir. But unfortunately, the result was that nobody you know, knows it's there because it's, it's cleverly called a note about the author, but it's actually not like, you know, DT Max lives in Montclair, it's about a neurology exam. Um, I think that if you wanted to draw a connection among the three subjects, and I think it's probably a little bit much to say I'm a subject, except kind of I'm everywhere. I'm, I'm the air that these books breathe. I think, I think you're right. It's, it's essentially, look, David Foster Wallace, the biography of David Foster Wallace, the author of Infinite Jest, uh, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, is, is by no means a clinical book. Actually, it's almost sort of the opposite. And I think what was interesting about David was that he never really accepted his diagnosis uh, and sought different uh, diagnoses until he had one that he could deal with. So he was originally you know, given a diagnosis, or the natural diagnosis for someone like David Foster was. I don't know if any of you know about him. I know some of you have read him. But uh, he was—he had, he had some form of bipolar condition, although don't know exactly what. But he was given a diagnosis of um, atypical depression, and he preferred it. I mean, fundamentally, he preferred it much the way uh, you know the, the patient can select the information yeah. the patient wants to take away. It must be very frustrating for doctors. I was—I um, wrote a piece in the New York Times Magazine where I said I had a disease that didn't have a name because it's true that my condition really has never been genetically diagnosed, but that's also because there just aren't really very good genetic tests for the kinds of neurodegenerative disease I have. But anyway, I'm sure that if I had been the doctors who examined me here, they were like, no, you, you have Charcot Tooth Syndrome. But I would say, well, what is that syndrome? They'd say, well, it's characterized by a weakening of the lower legs. I'd be okay, but what, what, is the, what is the cause of the weakening of the legs? Well, we don't know. So, well, so that's just a description. I mean, that's just giving me, I mean, why don't we call it, you know, something else, you know, why don't we call it vanilla ice cream syndrome? I mean, you're not, tell, you're not giving me anything. There's, there's, there's no origin, there's no cause, there's no characterization. Uh, but I think by the same token, they probably just really didn't want to have this sort of, this sentence on him. Um, and I think that you might say that the Italian family um, had the, I think the courage to push further. I mean, they got their name, right? If you think about naming and, and how important naming is in medicine, and it is important. I mean, one thing that irritated me was that Charcot-Marie and Tooth would get to put their names on me, and I, I'm not, I certainly don't pretend to be an expert here, but, but everything I've read about Charcot has really like sent me to the bathroom. I just think he's a horrific individual. So he doesn't get to name me. Uh, tooth, I can't remember much about, anyway. But, 
you know, it's a great name. Uh, so I think they took their name, and I think they probably, in retrospect, I think at first they were, they were sort of thrilled to have that name for the disease because it meant funding and it meant hope. And now I think actually in some ways they wouldn't mind if their disease had been called, you know, uh, something, you know, thalamic injury, genetic thalamic injury right, condition, right, right, syndrome right. or something, something that like nobody will ever read beyond the first, you know, the first page on. Um, but I don't think any of these stories like is about a diagnosis so much as it is about a journey. And I think yeah. that, you know, the journey was what I was really interested in. One of the things that kept, that kept, I was so amazed about with the Italian family was that the life, the lives they lived were really incredibly similar to our own. Like, you don't, don't think they stood there cowering and waiting, uh, for death, because they didn't actually. Yeah. I think, you know, especially when you're young, 60 seems a long way off. Yeah. Even when I wrote the book, 60 seemed a long way yeah. off. Uh, and, um, you know, I think they, they married, they had families, you know, some of them don't, but most of them have families. And I think they live like we all do. I mean, I think that, that quote that Danielle read at the beginning is really relevant. Um, I, don't, I don't think they spend their time, uh, you know, just waiting, waiting, waiting by any stress of the imagination. But David Foster Wallace was such a compl complicated story also because, you know, he was, he was so smart um, that he used to fight his diagnoses, especially towards the end of his life. Remember, you know about David's death by suicide, 2008, but towards the end of his life, you know, he was, he had gone off of an antidepressant. This is all, all detailed in the book. And he refused the diagnoses that he kept getting from the, from the psychiatrist. So in that sense, I think he was, he was, he almost thought of it as sort of gladiatorial, a sort yes. of worthy... Yes. Warfare, and you know, I mean, I think any anyone who's ever been a patient, and then you know, doctors wind up patients too, right? That's the the irony. Like I will, I, I felt this a little bit when when every love story as a ghost story came out. There's a lot of a lot of press attention, really, about David. But they would interview me, and it felt very strange to be the object of interviews after I'd been the interviewer for so long. And I suspect that when you're ill as a doctor, that might be something similar, where you know, the the subject becomes the object. Um, but that was really, I think, if you want to draw the, the, the connection. You had had a question, I think, you were asking earlier on. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Um, I was going to ask you about... The Wallace question, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask about David Foster Wallace also, as um, uh, many of us in the audience are clinicians or aspiring clinicians and sort of trying to... You'll be a little louder. So oh, sorry. sorry. I thought the mic was... No, yeah. no. So many of us in the audience are clinicians or aspiring yeah. clinicians. <laughs> and uh, trying to sort of help individuals through the darkness and stupidity. And right. David Foster Wallace was definitely somebody who did that on a grand scale, but the darkness or something sort of consumed him. Yeah. I was wondering if you uh, had any advice to me or my torture genius med school classmates who, about how to sort of make it through that. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. And if I, if, I, if I even had advice, I wouldn't be so, um, so, um, sort of bold to, to give it, but I, I, I think what's kind of cool, one reason that I always enjoy talking to neurologists in particular, one, one because we can exchange notes from either side of the aisle, but also because there is a way in which David Foster Wallace seems to be really interesting to, to neurologists and certain, certain kinds of doctors, and um, one of the questions that I always wonder about is whether Wallace wouldn't have been an interesting kind of doctor himself. Uh -huh. Infinite Chess, which is his masterpiece, you know, is a book that's characterized by, at times, an almost clinical uh, detachment, you know, a, a wonderful clinical kind of analysis, especially, I think, of addiction, mm -hmm. uh, but also of other things, societal relations, you know, there's, there's a whole stance in it. So, um, 
I think what I would actually do is probably send you back to Infinite Jest. If anyone were ever to ask me that question, I would probably send them back to Infinite Jest as an kind of extraordinary novel that does a better job than I would ever know how to do. You know, I, I, I think, um, yeah, the, the Infinite Jest is just a kind of a book with, which you can go to over and over. Um, and anyone who's, who, I don't know how many of you even know of the novel, but if you do and you've been kind of terrified by the fact that about four times as long as this, or, um, and that you could use it to prop open your window on a hot summer's night. You know, I would say that uh, you just need to download, is it, it's, it's a fairly conventional novel with a very unconventional time scheme. I don't know if you'd agree with that, in the sense that the language itself, people are always too hard to read, it's not. What, you just feel unsettled within the story because it's not a standard chronological story. So in the modern era, and David would hate this, but it's true, you can sort of easily download a very good cheat sheet about how who the characters are, and then when you're on page 150, the, page 70 is the classic place where people go to die in Infinite Jest, but, but if you keep going, uh, so you can download these cheat sheets and they will, um, you'll, you'll have the confidence that you're actually sailing somewhere, and I think when you get a little further into the book, it becomes just so, so rich and such an amazing reading experience that you, you then have the courage to, to, to go on. If anybody wants to read it, and don't read it by yourself. I'm Rita Sharon. I'm 518 pages into it. <laughs> and I would love nothing more than to host a reading group where we meet twice a month and read this amazing work. That's, that's a great idea. Uh, but you're ahead of everybody else here. 518. <laughs> I mean, another, another um, this comes with a heading of sort, of sort of advertising. But one reason, one reason you write a biography, I, you know, in biographies, you don't always like the author, but you always like the work. I can't think of a single biography ever written by someone who was uninterested in the work of an author. I mean, I happen to love David Foster Wallace, but not every biographer does love his subject. So, you know, the biography is not a bad way to begin to see what part of David yeah. Foster Wallace you're actually interested in, because he's a number of different <coughs> components. I mean, he wrote absolutely charming travel pieces that um, are certainly easier uh, to read than Infinite Jest if, if you don't take Rita up on her, <laughs> on her, on her offer. We have time for one more question over here. Oh, yes. Um, well, speaking of the biography, in the beginning of your biography of David Foster Wallace, you talk about how embarking upon it, you were so cognizant that he meant so much to so many people and his work meant so much to so many people. And um, I was particularly struck by the examples of young people who seemed to Alive from the world of it. And I was thinking about the responsibility that you had as a biographer to take on this project. And of course, this is something we talk about all the time in narrative medicine the responsibility to tell another person's story, whether it's a clinician writing a note about a patient, that's a form of a story, and so forth and so on. And, um, and so, in telling the story, one of the things that we've been talking about is how, how does somebody's diagnosis define them or not and how do they deal with that so of course he struggled with anxiety and depression and alcoholism and as a biographer how did you how did you negotiate that in your telling yeah, um, well you know Danielle it's, it's actually an interesting story within with the story within the story is interesting because you know after a certain point David is no longer alcoholic and no longer smokes pot goes into 12-step program who's has the name anonymous in it, so I'm, I don't suppose to say the name, but you can figure it out. But what's interesting about that program, I think, in part, is that it's really a storytelling program. 
you know, there's, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I, I didn't know much about it before writing the biography of David Foster Wallace, but it's a, it's a program whose main tool is narrative, um, also coffee. But yeah. you, there's, there's, there's very little expertise in it. You know, you're not surrounded by clinicians. You're not surrounded by people who are substance abuse experts. You're just surrounded by other people who have abused alcohol or pot or whatever. And so I think that really testifies, I hadn't thought of it until being here today, to the extraordinary power of narrative uh, to make us well in that case, or well, or, or better, uh, or more generally just to explain our lives. I think that the, the question about whether you, you know, what is, the, what, is, what is the trust that a biographer has to take on himself is a really complicated question, because I think we all know, if you've ever told a story about a friend uh, or a relative, that that relative or friend is not going to see the story the same way. If you remember just the most ordinary... So I don't think that what the biographer does is try to tell the story the way that the subject would tell the story. It's never been interesting. I've never been an individual who could cooperate on that level. I will, I will never do it as told to. Uh, uh, I, would, I, would, I would, you know, I just couldn't imagine doing it. It's just now not how I think. So if you accept that as your point of departure, then you ask, well, what's my, what am I going to do? What is my, what a good am I going to do in the world? Why do you need me, right? Um, and I think really all you can do, and I did it in, I tried to do it in both these books, um, is that you try to be a kind of sympathetic, open-minded listener, the kind of person who says relatively little, but kind of keeps his or her his or her ears open. That's always how I've tried to write. Um, a lot of people in reviewing. Every love story is a ghost story. Would say, you know, it's so amazing. He doesn't try to imitate David Foster Wallace. Um, one that would have been suicidal, I think, from, like, from the point of view of critical reception, would be like writing a biography of Joan Didion and writing in Joan Didion style. But actually, more deeply, like I don't think the way David uh, thought. Uh, um, and and I don't. And I was very aware that I was kind of a part, I was kind of a re recipient. I was. I was the shaper, obviously. I mean, we don't be disingenuous about it. I had the last word, right? I mean, nobody could stop me from saying anything I wanted. But you don't, at least I don't go into writing and say, well, I can do anything I want. I, don't, I literally don't do that. I literally understand myself to be under constraints of accuracy and narrative uh, and a kind of truthfulness that's probably not the exact same thing as, a, as clinical notes, because they're not clinical notes. Uh, but yet it is a kind of truthfulness that people respond to. And so I think I always felt if I could just stay within those, those guidelines, you know, there are people who love David Foster Wallace, you know, uh, I won't say more than I do, that's a kind of weird thing, but certainly who have loved him for longer and deeper. Let me put it this way, there are people who have tattoos of their favorite sentences from Infinite Jest. I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> I thought about it, I thought about it when I was writing the book and I, my, my daughter vetoed it. She thought it was, and I think you should always trust your children on these things. But I did sort of want to get this as water, to put it somewhere inconspicuous, but I didn't do it. And now, since I'm beginning a new book on a totally different subject, I'm kind of glad, actually, I don't have this as water tattooed somewhere on my person, because you know, then I'd have to have another, another tattoo put on. But my point is, like, there are people who own him in a way that I don't pretend to own him. And they own him with the love and the passion of people who re read a book at just the right moment in their lives. You know, you read a book, you, you still see people like this all the time with Infinite Jest, who 
they, they find the infinite jest at just the moment when they're truly most open to it, and it's a book that, that pushes away all other books in their imagination. I wasn't that person. I mean, I was deeply, deeply engrossed in infinite jest. I, I was stunned by its brilliance. I read it three times. But, you know, I run into people all the time. You know, I remember, you know, the scene where, and I'm like, no. <laughs> I remember what I wrote, but I don't actually remember that scene. So, you know, I, I think if you hold yourself to a standard that's too high, then you don't write. You just understand why you shouldn't be the writer. And that has its own drawbacks. Because if you do think of yourself as somebody who, who can do the task with honor, then why shouldn't you do the task? So, Daniel, I want to thank you for thank you. your insight. And it's also a gift to have you back at Columbia Presbyterian yeah. now, now as an educator, yeah. um, helping us really understand and enhance the way we receive patient stories. And for that, we thank you. Thank you all for having me. There are books in the back if you're interested. And uh, thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next month.